Welcome to this edition of The Technology Pill, a podcast that looks at how technology is reshaping our lives every day and exploring the different ways that governments and companies use tech to increase their power. My name is Gus Hossein, and I'm the Executive Director of Privacy International. My name is Caitlin Bishop, and I'm Privacy International's Campaigns Officer. This podcast may seem late now that it's February. But we have a good excuse. In classic Orwellian manner, PI has its own definition of what is a new year. We even have our own new year month, which is actually February. That is, every February, PI staff come together to imagine what does the new year look like. And we organize around projects and we plan our interventions in the world to annoy powerful institutions. We all do it at the beginning of our year, which is February. So this is the time of year where we are genuinely wondering, what do we predict will happen this year? So now we have a new plan and a new set of challenges for PI to navigate and for us all to navigate and changes to create. To get a sense of the mood and the insights from our colleagues who will be doing all this heavy lifting around the campaigning and advocacy for the coming year, we thought we'd bring you some of their perspectives. Let's start with, uh, oh, I was going to start with Caitlin, but Caitlin removed herself. Caitlin's prediction for this year was dot, dot, dot. <laughs> I don't know. I think this year more than any other year, which I've probably said every year since the pandemic started, could go either way. Although the UK is in the midst of an Omicron surge and has been for a while, in a really weird way, people, like they have done before, are like starting to talk about it less, starting to talk about the end of the pandemic. So we're in a really weird like pivot point where I think something like 450 people died. I don't know if that was this week or yesterday, but everyone's still thinking about the end of the pandemic. So I'm just like, more this year, more than any other. I don't know if I'm optimistic or pessimistic or it just feels like we're at the beginning of like a million different branches and everything could go so drastically differently in different directions that I just, even thinking about what 2022 would look like, you know, I was the one asking all our colleagues to do this and I was like, I have no idea. I don't know where to start with that at all, <laughs> which is weird because like, in theory, it was the same last year, but it wasn't somehow. I don't know. I'm crazy optimistic. This time last year, I was trying to do a full-time job and full-time teaching my kid at home. You know, anything is better than that. And you're right. Like the UK is in the middle of the Omicron wave, but I've seen what it does in the sense that it is passing us in that in people's minds, it's a different era now. Like even just going shopping, I see people who aren't wearing masks, not because they're militants against masks, but because they, they might have forgot them at home. I could speak about myself and my wife doing that both individually. And, you know, there were times where we would never dare venture out without a mask. And it's not just the exhaustion. It's a different time now. And I think the pandemic has to face all of us in this different time. I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying other than I'm not as despondent. I kind of know what you mean in that the panic has passed. So the kind of overwhelming fear all the time has passed. The time where, you know, the first lockdown, you were allowed out for an hour to exercise once a day. Like that time has probably passed. We're in this really weird time at the moment where people's risk calculation, the risks that they're willing to take, what they feel the risks are, are so disparate. 
you know, they're wild. Like, there's things that some people feel safe and willing to do scare the bejesus out of me. And some of the things that scare the bejesus out of me, other people are like, it's fine. And then there's some of the things I'm willing to do. Other people are like, I would I would go nowhere near that. Partly because our government started to go, well, you know, do what you want. <laughs> you know, for its own political reasons, we're in a really weird context at the moment. But because there is less external structure, and we've had this phase in the pandemic before, where there's less external structure, everyone has to make their own decisions about what they feel comfortable with. But it just ends up in this really weird space where is the pandemic kind of finally petering out? Maybe, probably not. We've had that before. Is this the final year of the pandemic? And it will kind of, the prediction for the year maybe is the pandemic will ease off and will kind of look towards, which is my prediction for last year, will look towards a greater range of things. It will define this year less. Or is it that... You know, we're in that same phase we've been in before where things seem slightly less bad and then it's going to get worse again and then it's going to get better. And like, I think maybe that is part of the problem with me making predictions is we've seen this phase before and it could go. This could finally be the one where we break out the cycle. This could be the one where it's just another, you know, it's just another dip in confidence and people are feeling better, but it's not really, it's so hard to say. You're nailing it. And and the way I turned that interprediction. It's that what you're describing is the exhaustion of having to always make calculations, mm. always having to make risk calculations about whether you go out, how you go out, the conditions of where you go out. And I think we're exhausted of that. And it's going to be really interesting to see what happens to our personalities as we collapse our capabilities of making these risk calculations and changing our behaviors accordingly. And I don't mean this just for the pandemic. I mean this also for protecting the environment. Mm. You know, in November with the big climate change conference, everybody was imagining what they would do to help stop the end of the world as we know it. And now I, I, I get the sense, maybe because it's a cold winter in Europe, also in North America, and people aren't necessarily thinking that way anymore. As much as it is top of our mind, in the same way that pandemic and risk is top of our mind, we're tired of making these calculations. And the world that comes up as a result of that is going to be really, really kind of scary, which is, as you say, if the pandemic gets worse and our risk calculations have been exhausted, what happens to our, our, our psyches? Similarly, if the climate, well, as the climate continues to get worse and climate politics gets worse, at an individual level, we're making all these these, these lack of calculations because we're tired of calculating our carbon footprint, tired of trying to find alternative ways of, of protecting the, the environment. What does that do to our psyche? What does that do with our confidence about our ability to navigate the world? and we're navigating a new world. You can apply that to healthcare. You can apply that to even privacy and computer security and all these issues. If there is this unlocking moment, not necessarily just unlocking from our homes, but the change from one condition, which was pandemic, to a, whether the government's defining it or whether it's a WHO defining a non-pandemic era, what happens to our psyches? Yeah, I suspect as well, if you're disabled and listening to this, you're a bit like, (laughs) because that like exhaustion of, can I go there? Is this safe? Will it have the mitigations and tools that I need is like just existing? And that's something that's been made worse. Like I follow a lot of activists in the disability space who are saying, well, (laughs) you know, everyone starting to leave their homes or whatever, have left their homes a while ago. And people are saying, well, I'm still at home because if I get this, I will die. And I, I just don't know. So that was why my prediction was a dot, 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 because I think this year more than, more even than the past two years 
could just go in so many different directions. But lots of our colleagues did not just put dot, dot, dots down. <laughs> you know, they stood up and said, this is what I think, or as I prevaricated. <laughs> I thought that Clara, our fundraiser, she had a really interesting prediction about how more under 25-year-olds will be shunning social media and opting to be more offline, or at least more private. And I think, in a sense, we've seen phases of that over the last 10 years. First, when, at least in the UK and in North America, I wasn't sure if the same happened in Europe, when Facebook stopped being as popular for younger people there was that sense that maybe that's a shunning of social media, but actually it just ended up being a a shunning of Facebook by that generation or that demographic in those environments. But she's speaking about something much more comprehensive than that. Yeah, what I think is interesting is Clara's talking about like ditching social media in the sense of posting something for other people to consume. So what Clara said was Instagram, Twitter and TikTok are out, private Discord chats and a carefully curated online life are in. And Discord is, is, is like chat, you know, in the same way that IRC used to be, the same way that lots of other chat kind of functions used to be. It is a focus on conversation and kind of in the same way that like WhatsApp and Signal are. It's a focus on conversation rather than on kind of posting updates that then people kind of not necessarily passively, but more passively consume. So it's a change in, she's predicting a change in the way that people communicate online. But she also then says in a carefully curated online life are in. Now, what's interesting is arguably Instagram and TikTok are a carefully curated online life. Lots of people use them in that way. Like they're not using them, you know, to keep up with friends in the way that I used to use Facebook like 10, 15 years ago. They're using them in a, in the Instagram sense, in the beautiful things and the TikTok videos and the hope you get viral and this could be a viable career option. Like people have been carefully creating online lives. Lots of people have, or lots of younger people have like a public Instagram and then a friend Instagram, which is locked down very tight. So I think in some ways we've seen that trend already happen, but there's such a, I think, disparate way of doing things between private Discord chats and those public facing persona creating platforms and then saying a carefully created online life I don't think she means carefully created in the sense of the Instagram public posts thing I think what she actually means is thinking carefully about what you put public facing the online like in terms of privacy rather than in terms of controlling your image and maybe less about people considering the things they post and having others see them and more people considering the things they post and having platforms see them which is the way I think we like to look at it yeah generally i'd say we're less bothered about you know i post on instagram my friends see it we're more bothered about the way that instagram sees it and treats it exactly so i don't know i think that's a really fascinating one i think i'm just interested in the kind of social dynamics of all these platforms and the way that people use them and what it means for like the way that people see themselves you know i'd hope that people thinking carefully about what platforms know about them and what information they have and how it's used people think more about that because that'd be great that's what we're trying to get them to do that would be ideal i wonder where tumblr fits into that as well because tumblr has a specific audience i would say now it kind of sits in a really weird space between those kind of shiny public facing heavily curated platforms and then discord it's somewhere in the middle and it's really i find it very funny 
so taking that to a slightly different level is our colleague Elliot. He had a prediction because as we saw in, in October, November, when Facebook was facing its greatest heat uh, as a result of the whistleblower, Francis Haugen, it decided to launch its rebranding and change the conversation to the question of the metaverse. And we all know why they were moving towards that and why there's, you know, billions of dollars thrown on it. Many good reasons and many problematic reasons, but all serving Facebook's interests, except our colleague Elliot says that in this coming year, Apple will announce a VR or AR system that will make Facebook's metaverse look stupid and people will buy the hype that they need an ecosystem that generates money now that they are producing less devices and going for sustainability. And the app store doesn't provide a strong enough ecosystem. So their spin on the metaverse might just do that. I'm not sure if I interpreted that just right. No, I think you did. What, what's your take? I think that's a fascinating one again, because I think one of the big drivers of Facebook and the metaverse is A, people using Facebook less, but B, it is such a potential goldmine for advertisers and profiling and the extra information you can get from, you know, biometric data, all that kind of stuff. Like I can see the incentives for Facebook. I'm not sure with Elliot's prediction, is he saying, what is it that Apple will make money on? Is it the handsets and the and the physical hardware? Because they're great. You know, they make lots of money on hardware. <laughs> Famously, they make a lot of money on hardware. Is it also games? Because one of the problems that uptake in VR has had is that there aren't very many games made specifically for VR. Like if you look at VR, there's maybe like one big game that has been made like a flagship game whereas all other kind of gaming consoles have that if it's not gaming then like yeah i'm just in, i'm just intrigued about where apple would get the money continuously from a, that kind of platform i think we had a conversation before where you know microsoft through teams are slowly building their own version of a metaverse that will probably especially for the things Facebook keep wanting to do with the metaverse, which is like work meetings, will probably be a lot more functional than Facebook's. I mean, I'm not saying it will be good, but, you know, Teams already has a really odd function whereby you can put all of the little heads of everyone you're meeting with in different settings, which I keep playing with. And I think it actually makes a difference to everyone on the meeting, not just me, which I only realized last meeting. So you can put everyone in a little auditorium and I've been doing that. And then I just realized last meeting that it affects everyone <laughs> so everyone knows when i'm having a fiddle <laughs> um, but yeah no i i definitely think elliot's right that more people will get in on the metaverse and they already have my sister's boyfriend over our kind of christmas was talking about someone blew a ton of money to buy the metaverse house next to snoop dogg's house in the metaverse and i was like well the metaverse isn't a real thing and he's like no 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 no, no. here it is and it's like Okay. I think Facebook are in trouble if they want the metaverse to be theirs, because I think they already kind of exist in lots of weird kind of successions to second life, you know. But I think that's a fascinating prediction. And I definitely think more people will hop on the metaverse bandwagon. I would be very interested in where Apple's money would come from for that, like what the monetary incentive is for them getting involved. Yeah, like the um, predictions are the Apple device will cost in the range of thousands. And oh, so yeah. who, who will I mean, buy it? VR devices already cost a fortune. Well, the Facebook ones, the Oculus ones, or the Meta ones now, um, for crying out loud, Talk about Orwellian, making people change their <laughs> language. They're only about two to three hundred pounds, so um, oh. and approximately the same in dollars. It's just they're they're a bit shit. like I've got one. I'm sorry, they're not that great. It's the. Do you remember language. the Nintendo Wii? Yeah, 
that's what they remind me of. There was a Nintendo Wii yeah. and there was something called the iToy. Oh, and there was the Xbox one with the wands. Like, that's what they remind me of. And that's what a lot of the games look like. But all of those are, for their time and their era, they were much more powerful. Like the, the thing about the mm. Oculus ones are that they are wireless. And so they're much more convenient to wear, but the processing power is quite poor. And so we have one that my son and I play with to try it out. And you get bored because the processing and the bandwidth is just so weak. And, you know, I have a decent internet connection, but the, the bandwidth is still a problem. And so if you want everybody to all of a sudden be processing much more data at a higher rate with greater resolution, you're creating a world for very few. And I think Apple selling expensive devices is happy to create a world for those few. Oculus and Meta think they can create the world for many, and it just doesn't add up. I love the idea of going to a work meeting with one of those heavy headpiece gears on. Like It's hard enough to get people to go to meetings, concentrate without comfort breaks at the moment. Imagine imagine everyone sweating exactly. with one of those things on. Exactly. Anyway, exactly. But no, I think it's an interesting prediction. At the end of the day, what would your face look like? You'd have to just those markings around your eyes. Yeah, like all the people in hospitals during the pandemic um, yeah, would be gentrifying true. that really horrible... Yeah. Exactly. But there is interesting stuff like Microsoft already is in the world of AR and VR when it comes to industrial work. Mm -hmm. And so there will be specific applications and specific applications fits the Apple model of a very expensive device purchased Mm -hmm. by relatively few. But Oculus and Meta are counting on VR being the new smartphone. And so many being out there with the bandwidth that we currently have, hobbled by a 5G that's not being deployed either because we're terrified of Chinese tech or as airlines have predicted, the chaos will reign supreme if 5G is widely deployed. So I just don't get how that world works. Elliot also has this interesting point about Google, which he says that cookie banners will remain. And cookie banners are particularly a thing in Europe. When you visit a website, it asks you, can they have your permission to put a bucket load of cookies on your device? And so Elliot says that banners will remain and keep annoying everybody because there's no incentive to change anything until, and he's hoping, well, not hoping, he's predicting that Google will will push its privacy sandbox this year and that will change the role of cookies and the role of cookie pop-ups. Yet we just saw that there's some news that German publishers are concerned about the move towards the privacy sandbox and the move away from cookies. They think it'll just enhance Google's power, which people have been advising for a while. Can you explain the weird Google thing again? Because I faintly remember it, but I can't remember the details. I think EFF wrote up a really good analysis of it. But essentially, Google's proposing essentially get rid of cookies and get rid of the ability for essentially third-party cookies and to replace it with what they call a privacy sandbox. You know, there are some promising ideas there. Generally, if Google's doing something, it's doing it for its own interest and it's going to increase its power and exclude others from having the ability to exploit your data as well, which is that a good thing or is that anti-competitive? And that's where the competition stuff gets really, really awkward and interesting at the same time. One of the others that Elliot's put down says brackets, that one might actually be for 2024, or that might be about the one above. But he says some big study will reveal EV have an unpredicted important ecological impact, manufacturing, recycling, whatever, that we're not dealing with. This will be similar to Dieselgate in some ways, more feed conspiracy theories and such. This is actually a very interesting one because because to some extent, this is already true. So the UK has a upcoming ban on all cars that aren't electric vehicles being produced and sold after, I think it's fairly soon, it's like 2024 or something. But we already know that if the volume of electric cars that were required are bought 
and plugged in, the UK doesn't have the electric capacity to feed them all the electric they require. We just don't. So that'll be a really interesting one. And I think it's not so much a prediction as a pre-existing fact, but it will be similar to Dieselgate, that everyone thought diesels was better for the environment and then it turned out it wasn't. And will feed conspiracy theories and such is an interesting one. I'm not sure about the conspiracy theories, but it feels like people make conspiracy theories out of everything at the moment. So hard to say. Yeah, like we're facing a huge shift in infrastructure from oil and oil energy distribution to electricity and electricity distribution. And uh, yeah, 10 years of upheaval. And we haven't even begun to see the the counter-revolution against it. And those are the things that you're starting to hint at. Again, this goes back to my point about the psyche. I think we all want a better planet. I think we all would like to imagine we're not destroying the planet as we're enjoying the things that we do. But how do people resolve that in their minds when they still get advertised this beautiful, beautiful motorcycle or this beautiful SUV or whatnot? How do you how do you say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to buy the electrical. And then you find out whether it's on the internet or just in general conversation, or there actually is a huge scandal that does disclose these are worse in some ways for the environment or worse for exploitation through lithium mining. One huge industry replacing another huge industry doesn't necessarily make the world a better place. And there will be definitely pushbacks. And Elliot, being French, has his final prediction being that there will be protests in France. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I would love it if uh, this time next year we're coming back saying that was the one prediction we got wrong. <laughs> I would love it, but it's an election year in France. So uh, I highly, highly doubt it. We had some fun predictions as well. Like Tom, our colleague, predicted that Turkmenistan is planning on closing the gates of hell, which is like a massive sink kind of oil hole that has been burning since 1971 and he says so maybe things will improve (laughs) which we'll see yeah but his final prediction is that nobody learns anything from the last two years (laughs) lessons are ignored by everybody and we just keep on doing the things that we were doing before the pandemic which you know that's a recurring theme in this very conversation yeah he also says we run out of greek letters for covid variants so yeah and my version of that was we stop having announcements around COVID variants. I think South Africa has been a lesson to the world, which is don't discover new things and don't, don't tell anybody about it because you'll get shut off from the world as a result. And that was like the biggest sin of 2021 was the closing of the borders from Africa to the rest of the world because we were terrified of the uh, the variant. And I think if company, uh, sorry, countries stop sharing this data openly, then this pandemic is going to get really bad before it gets better. So let's hope we let's hope we don't do what Tom thinks we'll do, which is not learn. Yeah, fingers fingers flipping crossed. I'm still excited about you know we talked about 2021, and I'm still excited about the kind of patentless vaccine that is still looking good. It's still looking good, and hopefully is is going to be rolled out fairly cheaply and easily uh, across the world because. That's what gives me hope from this year, I think. Yeah, I'm a little bit more despondent about that, just in the sense that production's always been the problem. It's not ah, production and distribution. But people have factories. Like, you know, there is an infrastructure in, you know, across Africa and in lots of places for distributing vaccines. It's just the advantage with this one, hopefully, is A, any factory can make it because you don't need 
special access or special permission or anything. So any factory that kind of knows how to make vaccines can make it. And this one is a fairly standard vaccine. Like this is not one of the shiny new funky ones with the, with the, with brand new delivery mechanisms, which are amazing. But this is kind of a more traditional one. So lots more factories can make it. And, you know, we've got all our vaccines. The West has them, you know. We've got stockpiles of them. We've got loads of them. We've got deals with factories that are giving us more than we could possibly need. Like, the other advantage of this one I'm really hoping is that it kind of takes out the hoarding and the muscling in that, you know, the quote-unquote West, but like, you know, America, North America, the UK, Europe... Australia, other countries, have really been elbows out, you know, kind of <laughs> coming in and sweeping them all off the shelves into our baskets. And I'm really hopeful about this one, that that won't happen. We'll have like, t- stripped out a big part of the of the problem, which is us. <laughs> I mean, geez. Well, hopefully if there is that liberalization of vaccines... And I'm still doubtful because like I remember this time last year, the biggest problem in vaccine distribution wasn't actually distributing the vials. It wasn't even uh, getting the paperwork or finding the people. It was plastic bags. There's a very Mm -hmm. specific type of plastic bag that you need for the production of the vaccine. And there just weren't enough of those being manufactured at the time. Now, hopefully, as the world manufacturing capacity goes back up, that type of problem isn't a problem. And if that actually happens, then, as you say, that we'll be having vaccines being manufactured in different parts of the world. And that means vaccine passports will have to come to an end. Because right now, vaccine passports aren't just answering the question, do you have a COVID vaccine? It is identifying which one you have manufactured where, and when you get your vaccine card, it tends to say which batch. And these things matter to countries if they've thrown up their borders to stop people from traveling, they're verifying that. So they want to make sure you don't have the the Chinese vaccine. They want to make sure you don't have the specific Indian vaccine that might be the exact same as the AstraZeneca, but it's manufactured for people in India. And so those are the walls that are currently up. If vaccine production gets liberalized and the focus is on distributing rather than tracking the deployment, then vaccine passports are over. I hope so. I just just want like an easier year. I know. I think there'll be some optimism again, like whether you say it's about vaccines or like, I just loved Christmas Day being so exciting with the James Webb telescope going up. And when we start getting some of the data back from there and start and some of the types of science that will be enabled through this telescope being so far out looking so far back into the past i think will actually be excited about space again in a way that doesn't involve the names of richard branson elon musk and jeff bezos you know like we'll be we'll be thinking about space in a inspirational way rather than a how can we monetize it way that would also be nice I'd forgotten that would have been a thing. Just random billionaires going to space for a joyride. I'd forgotten that happened. <laughs> Literally a joyride and leaving their cars there. Oh, yeah. Bloody car. That should be my prediction of the year. Elon's going to do some nonsense. He's already popped up starting to try and get human trials of his brain chip, which he says will help store memories, I think. Okay, I mean, can you imagine? 
Can you, you imagine? You, Meanwhile, I, I started the new year at PI struggling with the decision around how we use PayPal because PayPal doesn't work. It doesn't integrate with other services. If only they could fix the things that made them billionaires rather than to try to conquer outer space. <laughs> we have some uh, Elon Musk fans at PI too, so don't, don't get us all wrong. Okay, so I think that's all our predictions. Actually, you're working beside Chris. Why don't you ask Chris what he thinks is going to be the most important game development this year? Chris. 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 Hmm? What do you think is going to be the most important game that comes out this year? Important how? Important culturally? Important culturally or big selling or? Uh, culturally. Culturally. I would imagine it'll be something VR. It'll be something Facebook, something VR. He says something Facebook and something VR, which is interesting because it presumes that if it's important culturally, a lot of people are going to play it, surely. Yeah, but they're looking for a game. It'll be the flagship, the thing that makes people go and buy VR headsets. Interesting. You don't think Beat Saber's enough? No, not even (laughs) Half-Life Alex. Not even Half-Life Alex was enough. Yeah, Half-Life Alex was the game I was talking about earlier as the only real, like, flagship, proper VR game. Beat Saber's basically just dance, but... There's not very many. Even the ones made by AAA Studios says Doom has a VR... Doom uh, has a VR version? Yeah, but it's only 30 minutes of game. It's a half an hour game. My guess would have to be something like Among Us. Oh, interesting. You think Among Us? Something like an Among Us or Animal Crossing that has to bring people together to play a game. And it has to be simple enough that it can apply to different processing capabilities. Like Half-Life Alex works only on some devices. Beat Saber is one of those more democratic games in that, that processing power is less, but uh, it's not enough to bring people together. But I think both of those games ended up being fads, right? Like, does anyone play Among Us anymore? I, okay, I, no, exactly. You're right. Animal Crossing brought out like a some extra downloadable content that my little brother got me for christmas so i've played a little bit more of animal crossing but like i don't think it's a thing anymore like wordle is the closest thing we have we've had to either of those games you know in ages and i imagine wordle will die (laughs) gently as those have died gently I love Wordle, but uh, I know I won't be doing it in a month. I quite like um, Wordle. And it's just, this is what we are as a society. We consume it and we, we stop. And so, you know, there was a moment in time that we were all playing Among Us at PEI. Mm. And that was beautiful, but we just stopped. And are we going to go and buy a 300-pound device in order to play a game for a short period of time? Maybe um, if there's another lockdown and everyone's looking for something, then VR will have its moment. And the way that everyone bought a Switch, people will suddenly all buy a vr headset so i guess facebook is betting on a, another lockdown in order for its 10 billion dollar investment to work out or the outside world will become so unpleasant you want to stay in the inside world that's a great way of looking at the future okay so those are our predictions of the year. We ignored all the dark ones like war <laughs> and famine and destruction, even though all those things are on. <laughs> That's basically happened in January already. Um, but yeah, we, we, we focused a little bit more on the optimistic ones. I don't know. Yeah. And, you know, like this year, hopefully next year we'll swing back round. You know, we'll say, aha, we were right to focus on the optimistic ones, which in its way is our prediction. It's us 
you know, filtering our colleagues' predictions and it's our prediction. And we'll say, we're right to focus on all the optimistic ones. What a great year that turned out to be. Or at least, you know, one a gentle upwards trajectory that that year had. Um, we'll swing back around and we'll be like, yes, this is great. But we'll also, you know, I'll keep this list. And then we can swing back around and say, so it turns out all of our colleagues' darkest predictions came true. <laughs> and we're recording this now on the battered wasteland that is... I'm in Kent, you know, huddled around to the fire and everyone listening is listening on like those tin cans with strings. Uh, But we'll see. We'll see. Fingers crossed. We will talk to you next year and we will say we were right and we are wonderful. (laughs) Thanks for that, Caitlin. Thanks for listening. If you have any predictions that you think we should consider as we plan our work for this year, you can find us in all the normal places on social media, including Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Mastodon. You can like and subscribe to the podcast on the various platforms you use. It's also available on our website at privacyinternational.org. You can support PI by going to pvcy.org forward slash donate pill and sign up to our emails at action.privacyinternational.org. This podcast is produced by Max Burnell. Music is courtesy of Sepia. Mm-hmm.